All right. Our first scripture reading this morning is going to come out of John 4, which is on page 888 of the Blue Pew Bible. I'm just going to catch up a little bit. Uh, near somewhere during Jesus' ministry, uh, he came out and interacted with this woman who is an outcast in her society. And she's outcast for a really good reason. Uh, she's obviously sexually immoral, probably a homewrecker, wrecked more than one marriage. She's religiously heretical, like would have gotten kicked out of the church. And she has a, a racial history that would have involved violence against Jews like Jesus. And Jesus comes out and respectfully and gently and lovingly befriends her. And we see here in how Jesus treats her, how Jesus treats us, who once were enemies of God, who ought to be outcast, who have been immoral and sinned. And we see how Jesus calls us to respectfully and gently enter into relationship with those who are not yet citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So let's, let's be looking for those things and see that in John 4, starting in verse 7. Uh, the Apostle John records for us that a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, uh, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She was probably thinking of a spring. She didn't get the spiritual significance quite yet. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman gets it now and says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying you have, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, oh, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, 
and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Scandalous. Jesus wasn't supposed to do that sort of thing. It looked bad. Uh, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered in to their labor. And now if you'll turn over to Romans, uh, Romans 10, so continuing on through Romans 10, that's going to be on page 946 of those blue pew Bibles. Now, uh, Pastor Mike reviewed the entire book of Romans last week. Very impressive. <laughs> um, but we're, we're going to pick up sort of going into the last quarter-ish-esque, uh, last half. Uh, and Paul has just started to talk about how he would give himself to eternal hell to save his people. Because that's how much he loves his people. But they have rejected Jesus. And they, have become, and they are enemies of God. But even they, even these enemies of God, would be saved if they put their faith in Jesus. That was our call to worship. And Paul says this is available to everyone. So it's available to everyone here today, too. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been through, everyone who calls on the name of God will be saved. If you want a relationship with God, if you want to know true spirituality, if you feel condemned or ashamed, or guilty, and want to know forgiveness, and freedom, and cleansing, and peace, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And then Paul turns, returns to what he knows needs to happen for his Jewish brethren to be saved. But he expands it, and he's no longer just talking about the Jews, but he talks about what all people need, and what the church has always recognized it was called to do through the words that Paul writes, starting in Romans 10, Verse 14, where Paul wrote, How then will they, anyone, the Jews, other people, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone 
preaching is the way this gets translated, but it's a flexible word, preaching, proclaiming, announcing, teaching. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Remember, good news, that's the comes down to us as gospel. Those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. They have not all obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, all that I have read to you from the gospel, from Romans, uh, and while I haven't read anything from the New Testament today, it too all is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit on all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. And be pleased to, spirit, to pour out your Spirit right here at Heritage. And use some of us here in this congregation to bring those to know you right here in Oklahoma City. We ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. So, this is our last message in a short series we've been doing. We've called, What is the Gospel? And by the way, that's uh, point one on the back of your worship guide where there's a little outline as well as discussion questions for small groups or family time or whatever, uh, as well as for the children. Perspectives on the Gospel. Uh, And all of these perspectives that Pastor Mike has given us are true. Uh, They encompass everything from the sort of familiar, well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, to maybe the less familiar, and Jesus is the Redeemer of creation. Uh, Jesus is the King, uh, the promised Jewish Messiah. And the good news is that the king has come and conquered sin and evil and death. And when you put all these perspectives together and you see the richness of the gospel, it makes the good news of Christianity far more impactful than the nearly exciting news that you can have all your sins forgiven and have an eternal relationship with God. Well, that ought to be exciting enough, I would think. (laughs) But the good news that the king, the expected deliverer of God's people, prophesied as early as Genesis 3 and hinted to Israel and the world for eons has come in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And he proved it, not only by dying for our sins on the cross for all who believe, but by rising again from the dead, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair, physically, really, to prove it is true. And believing that the king is already come and that he has ascended and will return changes how we live our lives. Because knowing that, we now live in hope. And we live in dependence. 
We don't live in dependence on ourselves. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We depend on God. And that sounds like it all happens in your head, but it changes how you experience all of life. And last week we talked about how as we own the gospel, as we live as new people, a people of many ethnicities, many personalities, uh, many economic brackets, many political views even, we are united as one by something more important than any of those other things. We are united by the one King Jesus Christ who unites us and leads us to love one another so that the world will know we are his disciples by... So that the world will know we are his disciples by how we love one another. Some of you get A's. Uh, you'll get your grade in the mail. All right, but so by how we love one another, that how we love each other in Christ, despite whether we agree or disagree about who ought to be president, or even how we ought to school our kids. The fact that we love one another anyway, despite those disagreements, because we're in Jesus, is a witness to the world of the truth of the good news. And so loving one another creates part of the foundation by which we do the third thing that Pastor Mike has been telling us we do throughout the series. And i got to admit, seven messages about the other stuff, one message about this, I feel a little... All right. But, kids, do you, kids, stand up. Do you remember what Pastor Mike has been telling us to do? Because I guarantee you the grown-ups don't. Two kids? Really? Come on! Kids, yes! Big kids, little kids. Steve, even you can stand up. Oh, yeah! All right, kids, what do we do? We receive the gospel, own the gospel, and pass it on. Let's do it again. We receive the gospel, we own the gospel, and we pass it on. That's the last time you'll be doing that for a minute, so yay! <laughs> Thanks, guys. So, the last piece we're going to talk about today is passing on the gospel. We're already at point two in the outline. Don't worry, one of the points is way longer. <laughs> so, my friends, the church does not exist for itself. The church, doesn't, the church is one of the only organizations in the world that does not exist for itself. Because the good news is not just good news that we keep to ourselves. Jesus told his disciples in Acts, and I don't just mean the apostles, I mean people gathered around very clearly, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And ever since Pentecost, that promise and command has carried over to every other Christian translated to their locale. So Jesus wants us to be his witnesses, to proclaim the good news in Edmond and Oklahoma City and in all Oklahoma County and Oklahoma and America and to the ends of the earth. Now, don't misunderstand me. Most of us are not called to be vocational international missionaries. Although, some of you might be. Some of you might be. But all of us 
still have this command on us. It applies to all of us. We are to be his witnesses right here. Listen, wherever you go, there you are. And there you are called to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Starting in our homes, but without a doubt, without exception, moving out into our communities, our neighborhoods, our housing additions, our workplaces, and anywhere else you go. This is a command for the average person at Heritage Presbyterian Church who plays racquetball with unbelievers on Thursdays and who works with unbelievers that become dear to them Monday through Friday. It is a command that we are to go to those unbelievers in the fields that God has already been at work in. And the field is wherever you are. And He is calling each of us into those fields to be about this work as Jesus said in John 4. That too, it was a promise to his apostles then, but it carried over into the church now. Again, we're not all called to be the Apostle Paul, but rather most of us are to be like the man in Mark 5. He was a demon-possessed man, and Jesus cast out the demons, uh, and then The healed man begged to go with Jesus. And here's what Jesus said to him. Go home to your friends. Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. Right, So he he went to where he would be. He went to his workplace. He went to his city. He went to a normal place and proclaimed there how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. And in Acts, after the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost, we see that the people began to be scattered and as they got scattered out and about and everywhere, and again, it was not just the apostles. It was the ordinary Christians The ordinary Christians, Acts 8 says, went about preaching the Word. I I was talking with Caitlin about this this morning. There is a very fine balance that I'm trying to walk here. Because I do not want evangelism to become just another burden for you. And I know some people experience it that way. And that's not what I want it to be. At the same time, I cannot say that evangelism is not a requirement of each and every one of us because it is. And so, however that works out. For me, Pastor Mike has often said, Wes, you have the gift of evangelism, fine. But, as we sang, just as I am, by the way, I have never been to a Billy Graham anything, although I know that song is part of that stuff. Part of the reason I love telling people the gospel, and part of the reason it's a privilege that I get to be a pastor is because I should not be a pastor. I am so sinful. Guys, there is stuff, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you what, but I'm going to tell you, there's stuff in my head that if you knew it, you would not let me preach. And it is... Amazing that God lets me do this as a vocation. 
And when it wasn't my vocation, it was still amazing to do because Jesus changed my life. I was depressed and self-centered and hard-working to the point of death and suicidal. And Jesus changed everything. Every Christian, I'm going to get back on script now, Every Christian is called to have a life of active evangelism, an evangelistic lifestyle. Again, I'm trying not to make this a burden. I'm not saying all of life is evangelism. I'm not saying every moment is spent on it. Your callings in life, your job, your marriage, loving one another in the church, recreation and rest all matter. As Pastor Mike often points out, our calling is, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 2, to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But guys, the next sentence in 1 Timothy 2 is, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. Meaning that quiet and godly life somehow plays a part in saving people which means your quiet and godly life is not just a private life. It is lived in such a way that the world, the unbelieving world, sees it and it affects them. Living the quiet and godly life has a purpose for others to see us and be in relationship with us as we live lives that unbelievers see are invited into that, as Jesus said, our light would shine before others so that they would see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And then Paul goes on to describe that life that we live before the unbelieving world. Now, I'm just going to tell you, and it's happened to me, Not everyone takes well to evangelism, okay? And that's to be expected. Uh, Jesus said some people would hate you for following him, okay? Some people will be offended that we want to change their religion. But in reality, it's the most loving thing we can do for another person. Guys, we believe we have something better than the cure for cancer. Forget that. Who needs that? Cancer is only temporary. By the way, there's people... There are people in this church with cancer, okay? But I don't take back what I just said because I'm trying to make a point. Cancer is only temporary, but we have something better than the cure for cancer. We have the cure for death itself in Jesus Christ. When we tell people about the gospel, we do it as those offering the cure to others who are suffering from the same disease we have suffered from and found the cure for. Penn Gillette, the famous atheist, Penn Teller? Okay. Caitlin tells me that's only something us older folks know. <laughs> yeah. So Penn Gillette, the famous magician, was also famously an atheist. And he once said in praise of a man who came up to him after a show and shared the gospel with him. Penn said this, I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. An atheist said, I don't respect people who don't do evangelism. I don't respect that at all, he said. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, 
and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them the gospel? How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? That's an atheist saying that. Now, I know most of you are probably with me at this point, but I've, just, I've got this thing in my bones I feel like I've got to say. Uh, um, one of the things Pastor Mike and I say to calm anxiousness, to bring calm in our church, is that God's kingdom does not depend on you. And it doesn't. We want you, we want all of us to have the confidence that God will bring his kingdom. And we want us as a congregation to not be anxious about anything because God will not lose. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is almighty. i got to tell you, I, I do have this fear that some people misunderstand us when we say that. And while I've never heard it said explicitly here, I have actually heard what, this, what I call hyper-Calvinism somewhere else. Uh, and, and sometimes, right or wrong, I sense that there's a little of this here. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm just telling you, I get the sense this, might, this is here. And so I want to correct it. Uh, some people have this sentiment that says, well, because God is sovereign, almighty, all-powerful, God's got this, and he's going to do everything. God is going to save who he's going to save, so I don't have to go do anything. I can just live a private, quiet, and godly life. And that is just, you've misunderstood us. That is wrong. To be clear, when Pastor Mike and I say that God has got this, that God is going to build his kingdom, when we as good Calvinists, which, spoiler alert, under the hood, we are Calvinists, when we say that the Holy Spirit has to regenerate people and give them ears to hear and hearts to believe, we are not saying, therefore, you don't need to go do anything about it. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what the apostles of the church has ever done. Rather, uh, for those who understand the lingo, we rest and pray like Calvinists, but we work and preach like Arminians which is just a fancy way to say God must do the saving work so we do depend on him and are not anxious. But the vehicle God uses to do his work is us. Which means we should work hard at evangelism. Guys, if you want someone to be saved, you are the means by which they are going to get saved. If you want someone to be saved, you are the means by which they will be saved. That's why Paul wrote to the Romans, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they going to hear without someone preaching? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Remember, I said, even as I read it, this is a complicated Greek word because it's got nine million meanings. Preaching doesn't mean what I'm doing right now necessarily. It's proclaiming. It's delivering news. It's teaching. It's just all stuff we all do, whether you're an elder or a deacon or just an ordinary Christian. Paul's point 
is that those reading the letter are the means by which God passes on the Gospel. Because faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. We are the means by which God passes on the Gospel. And in John 4, we saw a very brief example of how Jesus passed on the Gospel. We're now on point three on that outline. Jesus befriended that woman. Now, I get it. He used supernatural knowledge that we can't. Uh, but really, all he was doing was supernaturally fast-forwarding something that we can do. He was just supernaturally fast-forwarding the relationship. But we can do the same thing by committing to entering into long-term relationships with unbelievers. And the tone he used, the way he looked at her heart, the way he asked questions, the way he developed knowing her, the indirect and hear me, indirect and caring way he challenged her sin, the way he loved her even though he knew the worst about her, that's how Jesus loves sinners. And we can all do that because that's how Jesus has already loved us first. I mean, there's probably an exception in here. One of you like heard, you need to quit embezzling or you need to quit committing adultery and like you got really convicted and got converted. But for most of us, I dare say, it was actually still conviction of sin, but we really came to that conviction a little more indirectly. It was more that we realized it as godly people asked us good questions or as we were exposed to the Word so that we didn't just immediately feel condemned, but we actually saw ourselves as unworthy and then saw what Jesus Christ did for us. And I will say, Jesus is not only our Savior, but our example. Jesus wants us to pass on the Gospel, point four, as he did. And he said that very clearly. In John uh, 13, he said, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Just as I've loved you, just as I've been gentle to you, you are to love one another, and you are to love those you come in contact with. Which means, just as Jesus came into this world and made friends with sinners, so we make friends with sinners. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus was called a friend of sinners more than once. And he straight up affirmed that. said, well, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command. So no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Who is he speaking to when he said that? A bunch of sinners. A right-wing zealot a left-wing government official, two guys that wanted to kill people, one guy that was doing something so bad under a tree the Bible doesn't say what it was. And throughout the Old Testament, which is as much God's Word as anything in the New Testament, God has always befriended liars like Jacob, murderers like Levi and Simeon, prostitutes like Rahab, an adulterer like King David. Those, that's the main cast of the Bible that Jesus calls friends, befriending them and entering into relationship with them. And that's what transforms them, is being befriended by him. And I get it. Just 
honesty. This is an upper middle class church. Right? So we're around people with upper middle class sins hidden behind veneers, sinners that you may not necessarily see. But Jesus said that to hate your brother is murder. Jesus said to look at a woman with lust is akin to adultery. And your secret sins are not hidden to God. And we all stand condemned just the same. Um, Being a uh, counseling intern, I got to talk with some people in uh, upper echelon neighborhoods in the suburbs of St. Louis. I'll never forget one of the most shocking things was learning that this fairly wealthy, well-to-do CEO type had no furniture in his very expensive house. And his kids did not always eat three meals a day because he was wasting all his money gambling. These sorts of sins are all around us. And they have the seed in our own hearts. So we should relate with these. And touching people's hearts about these sins in ways that touches without immediately condemning is what Jesus did with this woman at the well. Now, uh, Pastor Mike asked that I I share a couple of stories uh, during this sermon. So I'm going to share four stories. Quickly. We have a friend. He, I, I mean, I would go so far as to say he's one of my best friends who show up at our house very, very high on meth. And he's been convicted of all, all sorts of violent crimes, and he's actually in prison now. But the particular night he showed up, we felt that the Holy Spirit was calling us to show hospitality to this man because the Spirit had moved him to come looking for Jesus. Uh, He actually slept at City Prez for the next week following that. This is when I was down at City Prez. The session of City Prez let him live there at the church while he got sober and got things together. And i got to tell you, despite him being in prison now, just based on conversations I have with him and things I know that I'm not going to get into, I have every reason to expect He is continuing to grow in his knowledge of Christ and repentance of sin. And he one day will be sober and clean forever. And you will see him in heaven. So then uh, uh, maybe a couple of stories that will make you feel a little bit better if you feel like things aren't going the way you want. Our neighbor across the street is a police officer in the Oklahoma City Police Department. I'm also pretty sure she's actually a Satanist, or at least a Wiccan. Like, she's done some crazy things, got some crazy tats. Uh, Her Facebook, whoo, we went to a Halloween party that was nutty as all get out. Um, In fact, there was this guy who was there in a clerical collar. I normally wear a clerical collar, not a tie. Um, And he was a debaucherous pastor for Halloween. But rather than just getting upset... How, being offended, talked with the guy. Took it in good humor. Even took a shot with the guy. And he had never seen a Christian treat him like that. He did not know what to do with us. 
And we have ministered to this neighbor. We, we, she was brutally attacked, and we tried to care for her, and we've prayed for her, and she has not come to Christ, but she certainly has never seen Christians treat her that way. Our other neighbors, the Sands, Randall and Jamie, it's a married lesbian couple, uh, we've really, they, they are near and dear to my heart. Please pray for them. They, they, I just care about them a lot. We've played board games with them. We've been to see movies with them. We've spent time with them. Uh, Abigail's taking care of their dog this weekend. We're friends with these lesbians. And I will never forget the day. <laughs> a, couple of, a couple of things happened. So there was this one conversation where Jamie says to me, you are a conservative pastor. Yes, I am. Like, it's not like I'm hiding it. And she went, I did not know I could be friends with someone like you. And, and the reason she was able to say that is because we have never condemned them. We have never made them feel like we're ashamed of them. We have loved them. We have served them. And they have opened up to us. In fact, in that same conversation, Jamie started talking to me about how she hears the message of Christian music and loves to listen to Christian music. And I don't mean like fluffy stuff on Caleb or whatever. I mean, she was naming some deep theological music. I was going, There's, God's doing something here. And then we went out to see the new Elvis movie, which I don't know that I can recommend, but it did lead to this profound conversation about the nature of community. And so we got to share with them what Jesus has done for us and how Jesus forms the church where we love one another. And they haven't come to Christ yet, but my friends, there have seeds been planted. Right? Uh, some people plant, some people water, some people actually get to reap the harvest, but in it all, God gives the growth. Uh, I'm just going to share something sort of personal. I, the Lord was very kind to me in the, during seminary and in the years prior to my coming here, I was very privileged to get to be the harvester a number of times. Um, it, it's been five years, uh, four years, since I've actually led someone to Christ. And what has been comforting to my heart, and, and the reason and I tell you this to comfort you, is that I, I thank God for that season in which I got to be a harvester. But I've still been a seed planter. God is at work. And some of these people will come to Christ before God brings what comes to us all, which is death. And I know that because there's one other story I'm going to tell you. And Mike has met this man. Mike's met Grant, too. Uh, but Tony, I had to do his wedding. Tony showed up when I was running a drug and alcohol rehab. Dude was stoned out of his mind. And he did not like me. And he did not want to hear what I had to say. Okay. And I sort of, listen, don't make people projects, but I sort of made him a project. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to make you like me. 
And I started to pray for him every day. And he was there for a while, and then he left. And then like a year later, he shows back up. So got to go through this whole six-month rehab again. But this time, things I had said in the months before had implanted in his heart. And he gave me new credit. And this time around, things went differently. And today, he is a member and deacon at City Press. Uh, yeah, thank you, Jesus. So I, I just tell you those things to tell you this is what it takes. I don't know how God is going to save everyone. Some plant, some water. Only God gives the growth. But not all evangelism involves you getting to be the one who does the baptizing every time, but we're all still called to it anyway. And kids, 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 listen, you're in a whole lot of situations. Homeschooled, Christian schooled, public schooled. But every one of you knows people and has friends around you that are not Christians. And you need to know that, kids. And God wants you to make non-Christian friends and love those other than Christian people. Because God used a child to speak to Naaman and lead him to the prophet in 2 Kings 5. And in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he actually writes some instructions to children, and in the very next paragraph, writes, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, season with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. But because it's right there next to instructions to children, well, that means the whole letter Paul's just assuming children are listening to all of it. So those instructions are for everyone. Kids and grown-ups alike. So kids, love your other than Christian friends. And parents, fellow parents of little ones. It's not, it's not like I'm talking to you abstractly. I got five little ones myself. Love your kids' non-Christian friends. It's what, by the way, Paul David Tripp is the one who taught me this. I'll admit I say that slightly defensively because then you'll crucify a famous person that most of you respect. Just being honest. Paul David Tripp is the one who taught me all the stuff I just said about our kids. Now kids, I, I, do, I want to put a disclaimer on here before one of you takes this and runs too far. Did you hear what Paul said? Walk in wisdom. Be salt, kids, okay? Don't do everything unbelievers say. Don't imitate the way they talk. Don't join them in sin or cooperate when they're doing something bad. But love them. Enjoy them. Be friends with them. Pray for them. Play games with them. Tell them things you appreciate about them and listen to them. Be good friends and get to know them and eventually you're going to have a conversation about what you believe. It's just going to come up. And then you can tell them about Jesus. And you can tell them about your God and how much he loves you and how excited he makes you. And you can tell them about Jesus the same way you would tell them about anything else that you love and is important to you. And guess what, grown-ups? Everything I just said to the kids applies to you too. Say in supernatural knowledge, the biblical examples of evangelism in the Bible, are very ordinary. They just involve entering into these relationships because this evangelistic lifestyle I'm talking about 
is that which God has ordained to save the world. And if you want to think more deeply about this, uh, a couple of you have manuscripts of this sermon. You'll notice that I have as many pages of notes I didn't use in this sermon as pages I used to preach the sermon. <laughs> so Pastor Mike's going to let me talk about this in Sunday school for two months. So if you are at all intrigued, I do have more to say about this. Come to Sunday school starting in March and April, and I'm going to dig into this. But I want to end this sermon with this encouragement. Any conviction of sin or recognition of failure that you have had today is only the Holy Spirit inviting you to know Jesus' love more deeply so that it excites you anew. Any conviction or feelings of shame you have is merely an invitation to revel in God's love so that it fills your heart so much that you want to tell someone else. I speak on behalf of Jesus who says to you, hey, I know your failure. I see you, and I love you. So come on, let's go. Let's give it a new try. Repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand and believe the good news. And he gives you a promise to bolster that with in Matthew 28, where he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is a command to do evangelism. I can't take that away. But it's not meant to be a command that is a burden. It's not a command alone. It's a command with a promise and an encouragement, Jesus is with us. Jesus is with you. In life, in struggles, in good times and bad times, and in doing evangelism. And he loves you and cares for you and will never leave you or forsake you. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And the one who loves you says he will be with you to the end of the age. So evangelize boldly, because that's good news worth spreading. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Savior, you desire that none should perish. And you have taught us through your Son that there is great joy in heaven over every sinner who repents. Grant that our hearts may ache for a lost and broken world. May your Holy Spirit work through our words, deeds, and prayers that the lost may be found and the dead made alive and that all your redeemed may rejoice around your throne. Let that begin with us move out into Oklahoma City and Edmond and Oklahoma County and Oklahoma and the world. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.